CD4 Midnight strutted its black stuff along the corridors of Unseen University as Spelter, with rather less confidence, crept cautiously towards the impassive doors of the library. He knocked and the sound echoed so loudly in the empty building that he had to lean against the wall and wait for his heart to slow down a bit. After a while, he heard a sound like heavy furniture being moved about. Ook! It's me. Ook! Spelter! Ook! Look, you've got to get out. He's going to burn the library. There was no reply. Spelter let himself sag to his knees. He'll do it too, he whispered. He'll probably make me do it. It's that staff. It knows everything that's going on. It knows that I know about it. Please help me. Ook! The other night, I looked into his room. The staff. The staff was glowing. It was standing there in the middle of the room like a beacon. And the boy was on the bed, sobbing. I could feel it reaching out, teaching him, whispering terrible things. And then it noticed me. You've got to help me. You're the only one who isn't under the... Sp Spelter stopped. His face froze. He turned around very slowly without willing it, because something was gently spinning him. He knew the university was empty. The wizards had all moved into the new tower where the lowliest student had a suite more splendid than any senior mage had had before. The staff hung in the air a few feet away. It was surrounded by a faint octarine glow. He stood up very carefully and, keeping his back to the stonework and his eyes firmly fixed on the thing, slithered gingerly along the wall until he reached the end of the corridor. At the corner he noted that the staff, while not moving, had revolved on its axis to follow him. He gave a little cry, grasped the skirts of his robe and ran. The staff was in front of him. He slid to a halt and stood there, catching his breath. You don't frighten me, he lied, and turned on his heel and marched off in a different direction, snapping his fingers to produce a torch that burned with a fine white flame. Only its penumbra of octarine proclaimed it to be of magical origin. Once again the staff was in front of him. The light of his torch was sucked into a thin, singing stream of white fire that flared and vanished with a pop. He waited, his eyes watering with blue afterimages. But if the staff was still there, it didn't seem to be inclined to take advantage of him. When Vision returned, he felt he could make out an even darker shadow on his left. The stairway down to the kitchens. He darted for it, leaping down the unseen steps and landing heavily and unexpectedly on uneven flags. A little moonlight flittered through a grating in the distance, and somewhere up there, he knew, was a doorway into the outside world. Staggering a little, his ankles aching, the noise of his own breath booming in his ears as though he'd stuck his entire head in a seashell, Spelter set off across the endless dark desert of the floor. Things clanked underfoot. There were no rats here now, of course, but the kitchen had fallen into disuse lately. The university's cooks had been the best in the world, but now any wizard could conjure up meals beyond mere culinary skill. The big copper pans hung neglected on the walls, their sheen already tarnishing, and the kitchen ranges under the giant chimney arch were filled with nothing but chilly ash. The staff lay across the back door like a bar. It spun up as Spelter tottered towards it and hung radiating quiet malevolence a few feet away. Then, quite smoothly, it began to glide towards him. He backed away, his feet slipping on the greasy stones. A thump across the back of his thighs made him yelp, but as he reached behind him he found it was only one of the chopping blocks. His hand groped desperately across its scarred surface, and against all hope found a cleaver buried in the wood. In an instinctive gesture as ancient as mankind, Spelter's fingers closed around its handles. He was out of breath and out of patience, and out of space and time, 
and also scared, very nearly out of his mind. So when the staff hovered in front of him, he wrenched the chopper up and around with all the strength he could muster, and hesitated. All that was wizardly in him cried out against the destruction of so much power, power that perhaps even now could be used, used by him. And the staff swung around so that its axis was pointing directly at him. And several corridors away, the librarian stood braced with his back against the library door, watching the blue and white flashes that flickered across the floor. He heard the distant snap of raw energy and a sound that started low and ended up in zones of pitch that even Waffles, lying with his paws over his head, could not hear. And then there was a faint, ordinary, tinkling noise, such as might be made by a fused and twisted metal cleaver dropping onto flagstones. It was the sort of noise that makes the silence that comes after it roll forward like a warm avalanche. The librarian wrapped the silence around him like a cloak, and stood staring up at the rank on rank of books, each one pulsing faintly in the glow of its own magic. Shelf after shelf looked down at him. Or up, obliquely. The layout of the Library of Unseen University was a topographical nightmare, the sheer presence of so much stored magic, twisting dimensions and gravity into the kind of spaghetti that would make M.C. Escher go for a good lie-down, or possibly sideways. They had heard. He could feel the fear. The orangutan stood statue-still for several minutes and then appeared to reach a decision. He knuckled his way across to his desk and after much rummaging produced a heavy key-ring bristling with keys. Then he went back and stood in the middle of the floor and said very deliberately, Ook! The books craned forward on their shelves. Now he had their full attention. What is this place? said Kanina. Rincewind looked around him and made a guess. They were still in the heart of Al-Kali. He could hear the hum of it beyond the walls, but in the middle of the teeming city someone had cleared a vast space, walled it off and planted a garden so romantically natural that it looked as real as a sugar pig. It looks like someone has taken twice five miles of inner city and girded them round with walls and towers, he hazarded. What a strange idea, said Kanina. Well, some of the religions here, well... When you die, you see, they think you go to this sort of garden where there's all this sort of music and, he continued wretchedly, sherbet and, 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 and young women. Kanina took in the green splendour of the walled garden with its peacocks, intricate arches and slightly wheezy fountains. A dozen reclining women stared back at her impassively. A hidden string orchestra was playing the complicated Clatchian bong music. I'm not dead, she said. I'm sure I would have remembered. Besides, this isn't my idea of paradise. She looked critically at the reclining figures and added, I wonder who does their hair? A sword point prodded her in the small of the back, and the two of them set out along the ornate path towards a small domed pavilion surrounded by olive trees. She scowled. Anyway, I don't like sherbet. Rincewind didn't comment. He was busily examining the state of his own mind and wasn't happy at the sight of it. He had a horrible feeling that he was falling in love. He was sure he had all the symptoms. They were the sweaty palms, the hot sensation in the stomach, the general feeling that the skin on his chest was made of tight elastic. There was the feeling every time Kanina spoke that someone was running hot steel into his spine. He glanced down at the luggage, tramping stoically alongside him and recognised the symptoms. Not you too, he said. Possibly it was only the play of sunlight on the luggage's battered lid, but it was just possible that for an instant it looked redder than usual. 
Of course, sapient pearwood has this sort of weird mental link with its owner. Rincewind shook his head. Still, it had explained why the thing wasn't its normal malignant self. It'd never work, he said. I mean, she's a female, and well, you're a... He paused. Well, whatever you are, you're a... You're of the wooden persuasion. It'd never work. People would talk. He turned and glared at the black-robed guards behind him. I don't know what you're looking at, he said severely. The luggage sidled over to Kanina, following her so closely that she banged an ankle on it. Push off, she snapped, and kicked it again, this time on purpose. Insofar as the luggage ever had an expression, it looked at her in shocked betrayal. The pavilion ahead of them was an ornate onion-shaped dome, studded with precious stones and supported on four pillars. Its interior was a mass of cushions on which lay a rather fat middle-aged man surrounded by three young women. He wore a purple robe, interwoven with gold thread. They, as far as Rintman could see, demonstrated that you could make six small saucepan lids and a few yards of curtain netting go a long way, although, he shivered, not really far enough. The man appeared to be writing. He glanced up at them. "'I suppose you don't know a good rhyme for thou,' he said peevishly. Rincewind and Canina exchanged glances. "'Plough?' said Rincewind. "'Bow?' "'Cow?' suggested Canina with forced brightness. The man hesitated. "'Cow I quite like,' he said. "'Cow has got possibilities. Cow might, in fact, do.' Do pull up a cushion, by the way, have some sherbet. Why are you standing there like that? It's these ropes, said Canina. I have this allergy to cold steel, Rincewind added. Really, how tiresome, said the fat man, and clapped a pair of hands so heavy with rings that the sound was more of a clang. Two guards stepped forward smartly and cut the bonds, and then the whole battalion melted away, although Rincewind was acutely conscious of dozens of dark eyes watching them from the surrounding foliage. Animal instinct told him that while he now appeared to be alone with the man and Canina, any aggressive moves on his part would suddenly make the world a sharp and painful place. He tried to radiate tranquillity and total friendliness. He tried to think of something to say. Well, he ventured, looking around at the brocaded hangings, the ruby-studded pillars and the gold filigree cushions. You've done this place up nicely. It's, um... He sought for something suitably descriptive. Well, pretty much of a miracle of rare device. One aims for simplicity, sighed the man, still scribbling busily. Why are you here? Not that it isn't always a pleasure to meet fellow students of the poetic muse. "'We were brought here,' said Canina. "'Men with swords,' added Rincewind. "'Dear fellows, they do so like to keep in practice. "'Would you like one of these?' "'He snapped his fingers at one of the girls. "'Not, um, right now,' Rincewind began, "'but she'd picked up a plate of golden-brown sticks "'and demurely passed it towards him. "'He tried one. "'It was delicious, a sort of sweet, crunchy flavour with a hint of honey. "'He took two more. "'Excuse me?' said Canina, but um, who are you, and where is this? My name is Creosote, Serif of Alcali, said the fat man, and this is my wilderness. <laughs> One does one's best. Rincewind coughed on his honey stick. Not uh, Creosote as in as rich as Creosote, he said. Uh, that was my dear father. I am, in fact, rather richer.
When one has a great deal of money, I'm afraid it is hard to achieve simplicity. One does one's best, he sighed. You could try giving it away, said Canina. He sighed again. That isn't easy, you know. No one just has to try to do a little with a lot. No, no, but look, said Rincewind, spluttering bits of stick. They say, I mean, everything you touch turns into gold, for goodness sake. That could make going to the lavatory a bit tricky, said Canina brightly. Sorry. One hears such stories about oneself, said Creosote, affecting not to have heard. So tiresome, as if wealth mattered. True riches lie in the treasure houses of literature. The Creosote I heard of, said Canina slowly, was head of this band of, well, mad killers, the original assassins, feared throughout Hubwood Clatch. No offence meant. Ah, yes, dear father, said Creosote Junior. The Hashishim, such a novel idea. The Hashishim, who derived their name from the vast quantities of hashish they consumed, were unique among vicious killers in being both deadly and at the same time inclined to giggle, groove to interesting patterns of light and shade on their terrible knife blades, and in extreme cases, fall over. But not really very efficient, so we hired thugs instead. Ah, named after a religious sect, said Canina knowingly. Creosote gave her a long look. No, he said slowly, I don't think so. I think we named them after the way they push people's faces through the back of their heads. Dreadful, really. He picked up the parchment he had been writing on and continued. I see a more cerebral life, which is why I had the city centre converted into a wilderness. So much better for the mental flow. One does one's best. May I read you my latest oeuvre? Egg, said Rincewind, who wasn't following this. Creosote thrust out one pudgy hand and declaimed as follows. A summer palace underneath the bow. A flask of wine, a loaf of bread, some lamb couscous with courgettes, roast peacock tongues, kebabs iced sherbet, selection of sweets from the trolley and choice of thou, singing beside me in the wilderness... And wilderness is... He paused and picked up his pen thoughtfully. Maybe cow isn't such a good idea, he said, now that I come to look at it. Rincewind glanced at the manicured greenery, carefully arranged rocks and high surrounding walls. One of the vows winked at him. This is a wilderness, he said. My landscape gardeners incorporated all the essential features, I believe. They spent simply ages getting the rills sufficiently sinuous. I am reliably informed that they contain prospects of rugged grandeur and astonishing natural beauty. And scorpions, said Rincewind, helping himself to another honey stick. I don't know about that, said the poet. Scorpions sound unpoetic to me. Wild honey and locusts seem more appropriate, according to the standard poetic instructions, although I've never really developed the taste for insects. I always understood that the kind of locust people ate in the wildernesses was the fruit of a kind of tree, said Canina. Father always said it was quite tasty. Not insects, said Creosote. I don't think so. The seraph nodded at Rincewind. You might as well finish them up then, he said. 
nasty, crunchy things, I couldn't see the point. I don't wish to sound ungrateful, said Canina, over the sound of Rincewind's frantic coughing, but why did you have us brought here? Good question, Creosote looked at her blankly for a few seconds as if trying to remember why they were there. You really are a most attractive young woman, he said. You can't play a dulcimer by any chance? How many blades has it got? said Canina. Pity, said the Seraph. I had one specially imported. My father taught me to play the harmonica, she volunteered. Creosote's lips moved soundlessly as he tried out the idea. No good, he said. Doesn't scan. Thanks all the same, though. He gave her another thoughtful look. You know, you really are most becoming. Has anyone ever told you your neck is as a tower of ivory? Never, said Canina. Pity, said Creosote again. He rummaged among his cushions and produced a small bell which he rang. After a while, a tall, saturnine figure appeared from behind the pavilion. He had the look of someone who could think his way through a corkscrew without bending, and a certain something about the eyes which would have made the average rabid rodent tiptoe away discouraged. That man, you would have said, has got Grand Vizier written all over him. No one can tell him anything about defrauding widows and imprisoning impressionable young men in alleged jewel caves. When it comes to dirty work, he probably wrote the book, or more probably stole it from someone else. He wore a turban with a pointy hat sticking out of it. He had a long, thin moustache. Of course. Ah! Abrim, said Creosote. Highness? My grand vizier, said the seraph. Thought so, said Rincewind to himself. These people, why did we have them brought here? The vizier twirled his moustache, probably foreclosing another dozen mortgages. The hat, highness, he said. The hat, if you remember. Ah, yes, fascinating. Where did we put it? Hold on, said Rincewind urgently. This hat, it wouldn't be a sort of battered pointy one with lots of stuff on it. Sort of lace and stuff, and, uh, and he hesitated. No one's tried to put it on, have they? It specifically warned us not to, said Creosote. So Abrim got a slave to try it on, of course. He said it gave him a headache. It also told us that you would shortly be arriving, said the vizier, bowing slightly at Rincewind, and therefore I, <coughs> that is to say the seraph, felt that you might be able to tell us more about this wonderful artefact. There is a tone of voice known as interrogative, and the vizier was using it. A slight edge to his words suggested that if he didn't learn more about the hat very quickly, he had various activities in mind in which further words like red-hot and knives would appear. Of course, all grand viziers talk like that all the time. There's probably a school somewhere. Gosh, I'm glad you found it, said Rincewind. That hat is... I beg your pardon? said Abrim, signalling a couple of lurking guards to step forward. I missed the bit after the young lady, he elbowed at Canina, elbowed you in the ear. I think, said Canina, politely but firmly, you'd better take us to see it. Five minutes later, from its resting place on the table in the Seraph's treasury, the hat said, 
At last, what kept you? It is at a time like this, with Rincewind and Canina probably about to be the victims of a murderous attack, and Coyne about to address the assembled and cowering wizards on the subject of treachery, and the disc about to fall under a magical dictatorship, that it is worth mentioning the subject of poetry and inspiration. For example, the Seraph, in his bijou wilderness set, has just riffled back through the pages of verse to revise the lines which begin, Get up, for morning in the cup of day has dropped the spoon that scares the stars away and he has sighed because the white-hot lines searing across his imagination never seem to come out exactly as he wants them. It is, in fact, impossible that they ever will. Sadly, this sort of thing happens all the time. It is a well-known and established fact throughout the many-dimensional worlds of the multiverse that most really great discoveries are owed to one brief moment of inspiration. There's a lot of spade work first, of course, but what clinches the whole thing is the sight of, say, a falling apple or a boiling kettle, or the water slopping over the edge of the bath. Something goes click inside the observer's head, and then everything falls into place. The shape of DNA, it is popularly said, owes its discovery to the chance sight of a spiral staircase when the scientist's mind was just at the right receptive temperature. Had he used the lift, the whole science of genetics might have been a good deal different. Although possibly quicker, and only licensed to carry 14 people. This is thought of as somehow wonderful. It isn't. It is tragic. Little particles of inspiration sleet through the universe all the time, travelling through the densest matter in the same way that a neutrino passes through a candy floss haystack, and most of them miss. Even worse, most of the ones that hit the exact cerebral target hit the wrong one. For example, the weird dream about a lead donut on a mile-high gantry, which in the right mind would have been the catalyst for the invention of repressed gravitational electricity generation a cheap and inexhaustible and totally non-polluting form of power which the world in question had been seeking for centuries, and for the lack of which it was plunged into a terrible and pointless war, was in fact had by a small and bewildered duck. By another stroke of bad luck, the sight of a herd of white horses galloping through a field of wild hyacinths would have led a struggling composer to write the famous Flying God Suite, bringing succour and balm to the souls of millions, had he not been at home in bed with shingles. The inspiration, therefore, fell to a nearby frog, who was not in much of a position to make a startling contribution to the field of tone poetry. Many civilizations have recognised this shocking waste and tried various methods to prevent it, most of them involving enjoyable but illegal attempts to tune the mind into the right wavelength by the use of exotic herbage or yeast products. It never works properly. And so Creosote, who had dreamt the inspiration for a rather fine poem about life and philosophy and how they both look much better through the bottom of a wine glass, was totally unable to do anything about it because he had as much poetic ability as a hyena. Why the gods allow this sort of thing to continue is a mystery. Actually, the flash of inspiration needed to explain it clearly and precisely has taken place, but the creature who received it, a small female blue tit, has never been able to make the position clear even after some really strenuous coded message on the tops of milk bottles. By a strange coincidence, a philosopher who had been devoting some sleepless nights to the same mystery woke up that morning with a wonderful new idea for getting peanuts out of bird tables. Which brings us rather neatly onto the subject of magic. A long way out in the dark gulfs of interstellar space, one single inspiration particle is clipping along, unaware of its destiny which is just as well, because its destiny is to strike, in a matter of hours, a tiny area of Rincewind's mind.
it would be a tough destiny, even if Rincewind's creative node was a reasonable size. But the particle's karma had handed it the problem of hitting a moving target the size of a small raisin over the distance of several hundred light-years. Life can be very difficult for a little subatomic particle in a great big universe. If it pulls it off, however, Rincewind will have a serious philosophic idea. If it doesn't, a nearby brick will have an important insight which it will be totally unequipped to deal with. The Seraph's palace, known to legend as the Roxy, occupied most of the centre of Al-Khali that wasn't occupied by the wilderness. Most things connected with creosote were famed in mythology, and the arched, domed, many-pillared palace was said to have more rooms than any man had been able to count. Rincewind didn't know which number he was in. It's magic, isn't it? said Abrim the vizier. He prodded Rincewind in the ribs. You're a wizard, he said. Tell me what it does. How do you know I'm a wizard? said Rincewind desperately. It's written on your hat, said the vizier. Ah, and you were on the boat with it. My men saw you. The Seraph employs slavers, snapped Canina. That doesn't sound very simple. Oh, I employ the slavers. I am the vizier, after all, said Abrim. It is rather expected of me. He gazed thoughtfully at the girl and then nodded at a couple of the guards. The current Seraph is rather literary in his views, he said. I, on the other hand, am not. Take her to the Seraglio, although, he rolled his eyes and gave an irritable sigh, I'm sure the only fate that awaits her there is boredom and possibly a sore throat. He returned to Rincewind. Don't say anything, he said. Don't move your hands, don't try any sudden feats of magic, I am protected by strange and powerful amulets. Now, just hold on a minute, Rincewind began, and Canina said, All right, I've always wondered what a harem looked like. Rincewind's mouth went on opening and shutting, but no sounds came out. Finally, he managed, Have you? She waggled an eyebrow at him. It was probably a signal of some sort. Rincewind felt he ought to have understood it, but peculiar passions were stirring in the depths of his being. They weren't actually going to make him brave, but they were making him angry. Speeded up, the dialogue behind his eyes was going something like this. Mm. Who's that? Your conscience. I feel terrible. Look, they're marching her off to the harem. Rather her than me, thought Rincewind, but without much conviction. Do something! There's too many guards, they'll kill me. So they'll kill you! It's not the end of the world! It will be for me, thought Rincewind grimly. But just think how good you'll feel in your next life! Look, just shut up, will I? I've had just about enough of me! A brim stepped across to Rincewind and looked at him curiously. Who are you talking to? he said. I warn you, said Rincewind between clenched teeth, I have this magical box on legs which is absolutely merciless with attackers. One word from me and... I'm impressed, said Abrim. Is it invisible? Rincewind risked a look behind him. I'm sure I had it when I came in, he said, and sagged. It would be mistaken to say that the luggage was nowhere to be seen. It was somewhere to be seen. It was just that the place wasn't anywhere near Rincewind. Abrim walked slowly around the table on which sat the hat, twirling his moustache. Once again, he said, I ask you, this is an artifact of power. I feel it. 
and you must tell me what it does. Why don't you ask it? said Rincewind. It refuses to tell me. Well, what do you want to know? A brim laughed. It wasn't a nice sound. It sounded as though he had had laughter explained to him, probably slowly and repeatedly, but had never heard anyone actually do it. You're a wizard, he said. Wizardry is about power. I have taken an interest in magic myself. I have the talent, you know. The vizier drew himself up stiffly. Oh, yes, but they wouldn't accept me at your university. They said I was mentally unstable. Can you believe that? No, said Rincewind, truthfully. Most of the wizards at the Unseen had always seemed to him to be several bricks short of a shilling. Abrim seemed pretty normal wizard material. Abrim gave him an encouraging smile. Rincewind looked sideways at the hat. It said nothing. He looked back at the vizier. If the laughter had been weird, the smile made it sound as normal as birdsong. It looked as though the vizier had learned it from diagrams. Wild horses wouldn't get me to help you in any way, he said. Ah, said the vizier, a challenge. He beckoned the nearest guard. Do we have any wild horses in the stables? Some fairly angry ones, master. Infuriate four of them and take them to the turnwise courtyard um, and bring several lengths of chain. Right away, master. Um, uh, look, said Rincewind. Yes, said Abrim. Well, I'd, if, if you put it like that... You wish to make a point? It's the Arch-Chancellor's hat, if you must know, said Rincewind, the symbol of wizardry. Powerful? Rincewind shivered. Derry, he said. Why is it called the Arch-Chancellor's hat? The Arch-Chancellor is the most senior wizard, you see. The leader. But, um, look... Abrim picked up the hat and turned it around and around in his hands. It is, you might say, the symbol of office? Absolutely, but look, if you put it on, I'd better warn you. Oh, shut up! Abrim leapt back, the hat dropping to the floor. The wizard knows nothing. Send him away. We must negotiate. The vizier stared down at the glittering octarines around the hat. I negotiate? with an item of apparel. I have much to offer on the right head. Rincewind was appalled. It has already been indicated that he had the kind of instinct for danger usually found only in certain small rodents, and it was currently battering on the side of his skull in an attempt to run away and hide somewhere. Don't listen, he shouted. Put me on, said the hat beguilingly in an ancient voice that sounded as though the speaker had a mouthful of felt. If there really was a school for viziers, Abrim had come top of the class. We'll talk first, he said. He nodded at the guards and pointed to Rincewind. Take him away and throw him in the spider tank, he said. No, not spiders on top of everything else, moaned Rincewind. The captain of the guard stepped forward and knuckled his forehead respectively. Run out of spiders, master, he said. Oh, the vizier looked momentarily blank. In that case, lock him in the tiger cage. The guard hesitated, trying to ignore the sudden outburst of whimpering beside him. The tiger's been ill, master. Uh, backwards and forwards all night. 
Then throw this snivelling coward down the shaft of eternal fire. A couple of the guards exchanged glances over the head of Rincewind, who had sunk to his knees. Um, we'll need a bit of notice of that, master. To get it going again, like. The vizier's fist came down hard on the table. The captain of the guards brightened up horribly. Uh, there's the snake pit, master, he said. The other guards nodded. There was always the snake pit. Four heads turned towards Rincewind, who stood up and brushed the sand off his knees. How do you feel about snakes? said one of the guards. Snakes? I don't like snakes much. This snake pit, said Abrim. Right, the snake pit, agreed the guards. I mean, some snakes are okay, Rincewind continued, as two guards grabbed him by the elbows. In fact, there was only one very cautious snake, which remained obstinately curled up in a corner of the shadowy pit, watching Rincewind suspiciously, possibly because he reminded it of a mongoose. Hi, it said eventually. Are you a wizard? As a line of snake dialogue, this was a considerable improvement on the normal string of S's. But Rincewind was sufficiently despondent not to waste time wondering and simply replied, It's on my hat. Can't you read? In seventeen languages, actually, I taught myself. Really? I sent off for courses, but I try not to read, of course. It's not in character. I suppose it wouldn't be. It was certainly the most cultured snake voice that Rincewind had ever heard. It's the same with the voice, I'm afraid, the snake added. I shouldn't really be talking to you now. Not like this, anyway. I suppose I could grunt a bit. I rather think I should be trying to kill you, in fact. I have curious and unusual powers, said Rincewind. Fair enough, he thought. An almost total inability to master any form of magic is pretty unusual for a wizard. And anyway, it doesn't matter about lying to a snake. Gosh, well, I expect you won't be in here long, then. Hmm? I expect you'll be levitating out of here like a shot any minute. Rincewind looked up at the fifteen-foot-deep walls of the snake pit and rubbed his bruises. I might, he said cautiously. In that case, you wouldn't mind taking me with you, would you? Eh? It's a lot to ask, I know, but this pit is... Well, it's the pits. Take you? But you're a snake. It's your pit. The idea is that you stay here and people come to you. I mean, I know about these things. A shadow behind the snake unfolded itself and stood up. That's a pretty unpleasant thing to say about anyone, it said. The figure stepped forward into the pool of light. It was a young man, taller than Rincewind. That is to say, Rincewind was sitting down, but the boy would have been taller than him even if he was standing up. To say that he was lean would be to miss a perfect opportunity to use the word emaciated. He looked as though toast racks and deck chairs had figured in his ancestry, and the reason it was obvious was his clothes. Rincewind looked again. He had been right first time. The lank-haired figure in front of him was wearing the practically traditional garb for barbarian heroes. A few studded leather thongs, big furry boots, 
a little leather hold-all and goose pimples. There was nothing unusual about that. You'd see a score of similarly dressed adventurers in any street of Ankh-Morpork. Except that you'd never see another one wearing... The young man followed his gaze, looked down and shrugged. I can't help it, he said. I promised my mother. Woolly underwear? Strange things were happening in Al-Khali that night. There was a certain silveriness rolling in from the sea which baffled the city's astronomers, but that wasn't the strangest thing. There were little flashes of raw magic discharging off sharp edges, like static electricity. But that wasn't the strangest thing. The strangest thing walked into a tavern on the edge of the city where the everlasting wind blew the smell of the desert through every unglazed window and sat down in the middle of the floor. The occupants watched it for some time, sipping their coffee laced with desert orak. This drink, made from cacti sap and scorpion venom, is one of the most virulent alcoholic beverages in the universe. But the desert nomads don't drink it for its intoxicating effects. They use it because they need something to mitigate the effects of Clatchian coffee. Not because you could use the coffee to waterproof roofs. Not because it went through the untrained stomach lining like a hot ball bearing through runny butter. What it did was worse. It made you knurred. In a truly magical universe, everything has its opposite. For example, there's anti-light. That's not the same as darkness, because darkness is merely the absence of light. Anti-light is what you get if you pass through darkness and out the other side. On the same basis, a state of knurredness isn't like sobriety. By comparison, sobriety is like having a bath in cotton wool. Knurredness strips away all illusion, all the comforting pink fog in which people normally spend their lives, and lets them see and think clearly for the first time ever. Then, after they've screamed a bit, they make sure they never get knurred again. The sons of the desert glanced suspiciously into their thimble-sized coffee cups and wondered whether they had overdone the orac. Were they all seeing the same thing? Would it be foolish to pass a remark? These are the sort of things you need to worry about if you want to retain any credibility as a steely-eyed son of the deep desert. Pointing a shaking finger and saying, Hey, look, a box just walked in here on hundreds of little legs. Isn't that extraordinary? Would show a terrible and possibly fatal lack of machismo. The drinkers tried not to catch one another's eye, even when the luggage slid up to the row of orac jars just against the far wall. The luggage had a way of standing still that was somehow even more terrible than watching it move about. Finally, one of them said, I think it wants a drink. There was a long silence, and then one of the others said, with the precision of a chess grandmaster making a killing move, What does? The rest of the drinkers gazed impassively into their glasses. There was no sound for a while other than the plop-plopping of a gecko's footsteps across the sweating ceiling. The first drinker said, The demon that's just moved up behind you is what I was referring to, O oh, brother of the sands. The current holder of the All-Wadi Imperturbability Championship smiled glassily until he felt a tugging on his robe. The smile stayed where it was, but the rest of his face didn't seem to want to be associated with it. The luggage was feeling crossed in love and was doing what any sensible person would do in these circumstances, which was get drunk. It had no money and no way of asking for what it wanted, but the luggage somehow never had much difficulty in making itself understood. The tavern-keeper spent a very long, lonely night filling a saucer with orac, before the luggage rather unsteadily walked out through one of the walls. 
The desert was silent. It wasn't normally silent. It was normally alive with the chirruping of crickets, the buzz of mosquitoes, the hiss and whisper of hunting wings skimming across the cooling sands. But tonight it was silent with the thick, busy silence of dozens of nomads folding their tents and getting the hell out of it. I promised my mother, said the boy. I get these coals, you see. Well, perhaps you should try wearing well, a bit more clothing. Oh, I couldn't do that. You've got to wear all this leather stuff. Well, I wouldn't call it all, said Rincewind. There's not enough of it to call it all. And why have you got to wear it? So people know I'm a barbarian hero, of course. Rincewind leaned his back against the fetid walls of the snake pit and stared at the boy. He looked at two eyes like boiled grapes, a shock of ginger hair, and a face that was a battleground between its native freckles and the dreadful invading forces of acne. Rincewind rather enjoyed times like this. They convinced him that he wasn't mad, because if he was mad, that left no word at all to describe some of the people he met. Barbarian hero, he murmured. It's all right, isn't it? All this leather stuff was very expensive. Yes, but what's your name, lad? Nigel. You see, Nigel. Nigel the Destroyer, Nigel added. You see, Nigel, the Destroyer. All right, the Destroyer, said Rincewind desperately. Son of Harbutt the Provision Merchant. What? You've got to be son of someone, Nigel explained. It says it here somewhere. He half turned and fumbled inside a grubby fur bag, eventually bringing out a thin, torn and grubby book. There's a bit in here about selecting your name, he muttered. How come you ended up in this pit, then? I was intending to steal from Creosote's treasury, but I had an asthma attack, said Nigel, still fumbling through the crackling pages. Rincewind looked down at the snake, which was still trying to keep out of everyone's way. It had a good thing going in the pit, and knew trouble when it saw it. It wasn't about to cause any aggro for anyone. It stared right back up at Rincewind and shrugged, which is pretty clever for a reptile with no shoulders. How long have you been a barbarian hero? Oh, I'm just getting started. I always wanted to be one, you see, and I thought maybe I could pick it up as I went along. Nigel peered short-sightedly at Rincewind. That's all right, isn't it? It's a desperate sort of life, by all accounts, Rincewind volunteered. Have you thought what it might be like selling groceries for the next fifty years? Nigel muttered darkly. Rincewind thought. Is lettuce involved? he said. Oh, yes, said Nigel, shoving the mysterious book back in his bag. Then he started to pay close attention to the pit walls. Rincewind sighed. He liked lettuce. It was so incredibly boring. He had spent years in search of boredom, but had never achieved it. Just when he thought he had it in his grasp, his life would suddenly become full of near-terminal interest. The thought that someone could voluntarily give up the prospect of being bored for fifty years made him feel quite weak. With fifty years ahead of him, he thought, he could elevate tedium to the status of an art form. There would be no end to the things he wouldn't do. Do you know any lampwick jokes? he said, settling himself comfortably on the sand. I don't think so, said Nigel, politely, tapping a slab. I know hundreds. They are very droll. For example, do you know how many trolls it takes to change a lampwick? This slab moves, said Nigel. Look, it's a sort of door. Give me a hand. He pushed enthusiastically, his biceps standing out on his arms like peas on a pencil. I expect it's some sort of secret passage, he added. Come on, use a bit of magic, will you? It's stuck. 
don't you want to hear the rest of the joke, said Rincewind, in a pained voice. It was warm and dry down here, with no immediate danger, not counting the snake, which was trying to look inconspicuous. Some people were never satisfied. I think not right at the moment, said Nigel. I think I would prefer a bit of magical assistance. I'm not very good at it, said Rincewind. Never got the hang of it. See, it's, um, it's more than just pointing a finger at it and saying, Kazam! There was a sound like a thick bolt of octarine lightning zapping into a heavy rock slab and smashing it into a thousand bits of spitting white-hot shrapnel. And no wonder. After a while, Nigel slowly got to his feet, beating out the small fires in his vest. Yes, he said in the voice of one determined not to lose his self-control. Well, very good. We'll just let it cool down a bit, shall we? And then, then we, we, we might as well be going. He cleared his throat a bit. Mm, said Rincewind. He was staring fixedly at the end of his finger, holding it out at arm's length in a manner that suggested he was very sorry he hadn't got longer arms. Nigel peered into the smouldering hole. It seems to open into some kind of... Room, he said. Mm. After you, said Nigel. He gave Rincewind a gentle push. The wizard staggered forward, bumped his head on the rock, and didn't appear to notice, and then rebounded into the hole. Nigel patted the wall, and his brow wrinkled. Can you feel something, he said. Should the stone be trembling? Mm. Are you all right? Mm. Nigel put his ear to the stones. There is a very strange noise, he said, a sort of humming. A bit of dust shook itself free from the mortar over his head and floated down. Then a couple of much heavier rocks danced free from the walls of the pits and thudded into the sand. Rincewind had already staggered off down the tunnel, making little shocked noises and completely ignoring the stones that were missing him by inches, and in some cases hitting him by kilograms. If he'd been in any state to notice it, he would have known what was happening. The air had a greasy feel and smelled like burning tin. Faint rainbows filmed every point and edge. A magical charge was building up somewhere very close to them, and it was a big one, and it was trying to earth itself. A handy wizard, even one as incapable as Rincewind, stood out like a copper lighthouse. Nigel blundered out of the rumbling, broiling dust and bumped into him standing surrounded by an octarine corona in another cave. Rincewind looked terrible. Creosote would probably have noted his flashing eyes and floating hair. He looked like someone who had just eaten a handful of pineal glands and washed them down with a pint of adrenochrome. He looked so high you could bounce intercontinental TV off him. Every single hair stood out from his head, giving off little sparks. Even his skin gave the impression that it was trying to get away from him. His eyes appeared to be spinning horizontally. When he opened his mouth, peppermint sparks flashed from his teeth. Where he had trodden, stone melted or grew ears or turned into something small and scaly and purple and flew away. I say, said Nigel, are you all right? Mm, said Rincewind, and the syllable turned into a large doughnut. You don't look all right, said Nigel, with what might be called in the circumstances unusual perspicacity. Mm. Why not try getting us out of here? Nigel added, and wisely flung himself flat on the floor. Rincewind nodded like a puppet and pointed his loaded digit at the ceiling, which melted like ice under a blow lamp. Still the rumbling went on, sending its disquieting harmonics dancing through the palace. It is a well-known factoid that there are frequencies that can cause panic and frequencies that can cause embarrassing incontinence. 
but the shaking rock was resonating at the frequency that causes reality to melt and run out at the corners. Nigel regarded the dripping ceiling and cautiously tasted it. Lime custard, he said, and added, I suppose there's no chance of stairs, is there? More fire burst from Rincewind's ravaged fingers, coalescing into an almost perfect escalator, except that possibly no other moving staircase in the universe was floored with alligator skin. Nigel grabbed the gently spinning wizard and leapt aboard. Fortunately, they had reached the top before the magic vanished very suddenly. Sprouting out of the centre of the palace, shattering rooftops like a mushroom bursting through an ancient pavement, was a white tower taller than any other building in Al-Khali. Huge double doors had opened at its base, and out of them, striding along as though they owned the place, were dozens of wizards. Rincewind thought he could recognise a few faces, faces which he'd seen before, bumbling vaguely in lecture theatres or peering amiably at the world in the university grounds. They weren't faces built for evil. They didn't even have a fang between them. But there was some common denominator among their expressions that could terrify a thoughtful person. Nigel was pulled back behind a handy wall. He found himself looking into Rincewind's worried eyes. Hey, that's magic. I know, said Rincewind, it's not right. Nigel peered up at the sparkling tower. But it feels wrong, said Rincewind. Don't ask me why. Half a dozen of the Seraph's guards erupted from an arched doorway and plunged towards the wizards, their headlong rush made all the more sinister by their ghastly battle silences. For a moment their swords flashed in the sunlight, and then a couple of the wizards turned, extended their hands, and... Nigel looked away. he said. A few curved swords dropped onto the cobbles. I think we should very quickly go away, said Rincewind. But didn't you see what they just turned them into? Dead people, said Rincewind. I know. I don't want to think about it. Nigel thought he'd never stop thinking about it, especially around 3am on windy nights. The point about being killed by magic was that it was so much more inventive than, say, steel. There were all sorts of interesting new ways to die, and he couldn't put out of his mind the shapes he'd seen just for an instant before the wash of octarine fire had mercifully engulfed them. I didn't think wizards were like that, he said as they hurried down a passageway. I thought they were more, well, more silly than sinister. Sort of figures of fun. Laugh that one off, then, muttered Rincewind. But they, they just killed them without even... I wish you wouldn't go on about it. I saw it as well. Nigel drew back, his eyes narrowed. You're a wizard, too, he said accusingly. Not that kind I'm not, said Rincewind shortly. What kind are you, then? the non-killing kind. It was the way they looked at them as if they just didn't matter, said Nigel, shaking his head. That was the worst bit. Yes. Rincewind dropped the single syllable heavily in front of Nigel's train of thought like a tree trunk. The boy shuddered, but at least he shut up. Rincewind actually began to feel sorry for him, which was very unusual. He normally felt he needed all his pity for himself. Is that the first time you've seen someone killed? he said. Eh, uh, yes. Exactly how long have you been a barbarian hero? Er, uh, what year is this? Rincewind peered around a corner, but such people as were around and vertical were far too busy panicking to bother about them. Out on the road, then, he said quietly. Lost track of time? I know how it is. This is the year of the hyena. Oh, 
in that case, about... Nigel's lips moved soundlessly. About three days. Look, he added quickly, how can people kill like that without even thinking about it? I don't know, said Rincewind, in a tone of voice that suggested he was thinking about it. I mean, even when the vizier had me thrown into the snake pit, at least he seemed to be taking an interest. That's good. Everyone should have an interest. I mean, he even laughed. Ah, a sense of humour, too. Rincewind felt that he could see a future with the same crystal clarity that a man falling off a cliff sees the ground, and for much the same reason. So when Nigel said, they just pointed their fingers without so much as... Rincewind snapped, just shut up, will you? How do you think I feel about it? I'm a wizard, too. Yes, well, you'll be all right, then, muttered Nigel. It wasn't a heavy blow, because even in a rage, Rincewind still had muscles like tapioca but it caught the side of Nigel's head and knocked him down more by the weight of surprise than its intrinsic energy. Yes, I'm a wizard all right, Rincewind hissed. A wizard who isn't much good at magic. I've managed to survive up till now by not being important enough to die. And when all wizards are hated and feared, exactly how long do you think I'm going to last? That's ridiculous. Rincewind couldn't have been more taken back if Nigel had struck him. What? Idiot? All you have to do is stop wearing that silly robe and get rid of that daft hat and no one will even know you're a wizard. Rincewind's mouth opened and shut a few times as he gave a very lifelike impression of a goldfish trying to grasp the concept of tap dancing. Stop wearing the robe, he said. Sure, all those tatty sequins and things. It's a total giveaway, said Nigel, struggling to his feet. Get rid of the hat? You've got to admit that going around with wizard written on it is a bit of a heavy hint. Rincewind gave him a worried grin. Sorry, he said. I don't quite follow you. Just get rid of them. It's easy enough, isn't it? Just drop them somewhere and then you could be, uh, well, whatever. Something that isn't a wizard. There was a pause, broken only by the distant sounds of fighting. Um, said Rincewind and shook his head. You've lost me there. Oh, good grief, it's perfectly simple to understand. I'm not quite sure I catch your drift, murmured Rincewind, his face ghastly with sweat. You can just stop being a wizard. Rincewind's lips moved soundlessly as he replayed every word one at a time and then all at once. What? he said, and then he said, Oh, got it? Want to try it one more time? Rincewind nodded gloomily. I don't think you understand. A wizard isn't what you do, it's what you are. If I wasn't a wizard, I wouldn't be anything. He took off his hat and twiddled nervously with the loose star on its point, causing a few more cheap sequins to part company. I mean, it's got wizard written on my hat, he said. It's very important. He stopped and stared at the hat. Hat, he said vaguely, aware of some importunate memory pressing its nose up against the windows of his mind. It's a good hat, said Nigel, who felt that something was expected of him. Hat, said Rincewind again, and then added, The hat! We've got to get the hat! You've got the hat, Nigel pointed out. Not this hat, the other hat, and Canina. He took a few random steps along a passageway and then sidled back. Where do you suppose they are? he said. Who? There's a magic hat I've got to find. And a girl. Why? 
It might be rather difficult to explain. I think there might be screaming involved somewhere. Nigel didn't have much of a jaw, but such as it was, he stuck it out. There's a girl needs rescuing, he said grimly. Rincewind hesitated. Someone will probably need rescuing, he said. It might possibly be her, or at least in her vicinity. Why didn't you say so? This is more like it. This is what I was expecting. This is what heroism is all about. Let's go. There was another crash and the sound of people yelling. Where? said Rincewind. Anywhere. Heroes usually have an ability to rush madly around crumbling palaces they hardly know, save everyone and get out just before the whole palace blows up or sinks into the swamp. In fact, Nigel and Rincewind visited the kitchens, assorted throne rooms and stables, twice, and what seemed to Rincewind like several miles of corridor. Occasionally groups of black-clad guards would scurry past them without so much as a second glance. Oh, this is ridiculous, said Nigel. Why don't we ask someone? Are you all right? Rincewind leaned against a pillar decorated with embarrassing sculpture and wheezed. You could grab a guard and torture the information out of him, he said, gulping air. Nigel gave him an odd look. Wait here, he said, and wandered off until he found a servant industriously ransacking a cupboard. Excuse me, he said. Which way to the harem? Turn left, three doors down, said the man without looking round. Right, he wandered back again and told Rincewind. Yes, but did you torture him? No. Well, that wasn't very barbaric of you, was it? Well, I'm I'm working up to it, said Nigel. I mean, I didn't say thank you. Thirty seconds later, they pushed aside a heavy bead curtain and entered the seraglio of the Seraph of Al-Khali. There were gorgeous songbirds in cages of gold filigree. There were tinkling fountains. There were pots of rare orchids through which hummingbirds skimmed like tiny, brilliant jewels. There were about... Twenty young women wearing enough clothes for, say, about half a dozen, huddled together in a silent crowd. Rincewind had eyes for none of this. That is not to say that the sight of several dozen square yards of hip and thigh in every shade from pink to midnight black didn't start certain tides flowing deep in the crevasses of his libido, but they were swamped by the considerably bigger flood of panic at the sight of four guards turning towards him with scimitars in their hands and the light of murder in their eyes. Without hesitation, Rincewind took a step backwards. Over to you, friend, he said. Right. Nigel drew his sword and held it out in front of him, his arms trembling at the effort. There were a few seconds of total silence as everyone waited to see what would happen next, and then Nigel uttered the battle cry that Rincewind would never quite forget to the end of his life. Erm, he said. Excuse me? It seems a shame said a small wizard. The others didn't speak. It was a shame, and there wasn't a man among them who couldn't hear the hot whine of guilt all down their backbones. But as so often happens by that strange alchemy of the soul, the guilt made them arrogant and reckless. Just shut up, will you? said the temporary leader. He was called Bernardo Sconner, but there is something in the air tonight that suggests that it is not worth committing his name to memory. The air is dark and heavy and full of ghosts. The Unseen University isn't empty, there just aren't any people there. But of course the six wizards sent to burn down the library aren't afraid of ghosts because they're so charged with magic that they practically buzz as they walk. They're wearing robes more splendid than any arch-chancellor has worn, their pointy hats are more pointed than any hats have hitherto been, and the reason they're standing so close together is entirely coincidental. It's awfully dark in here, said the smallest of the wizards. It's midnight, 
said Sconner sharply, and the only dangerous things in here are us. Isn't that right, boys? There was a chorus of vague murmurs. They were all in awe of Sconner, who was rumoured to do positive thinking exercises. And we're not scared of a few old books, are we, lads? He glowered at the smallest wizard. You're not, are you? he added sharply. Me? Oh, no, of course not. They're just paper. <laughs> like he said, said the wizard quickly. Well, then. There's ninety thousand of them, mind, said another wizard. I always heard there was no end to them, said another. It's all down to dimensions, I heard. Like, what we see is only the tip of, um, whatever. You know, the thing that is mostly underwater. Hippopotamus? Alligator? Ocean? Look, just shut up, all of you, shouted Sconner. He hesitated. The darkness seemed to suck at the sound of his voice. It packed the air like feathers. He pulled himself together a bit. Right then, he said, and turned towards the forbidding doors of the library. He raised his hands, made a few complicated gestures in which his fingers in some eye-watering way appeared to pass through each other, and shattered the doors into sawdust. The waves of silence poured back again, strangling the sound of falling wood chips. There was no doubt that the doors were smashed. Four forlorn hinges hung trembling from the frame, and a litter of broken benches and shelves lay in the wreckage. Even Sconner was a little surprised. There, he said, it's as easy as that, you see? Nothing happened to me, right? There was a shuffling of curly-toed boots. The darkness beyond the doorway was limned with the indistinct eye-aching glow of thaumaturgic radiation, as possibility particles exceeded the speed of reality in a strong magical field. Now then, said Sconner brightly, who would like the honour of setting the fire? Ten silent seconds later, he said, In that case, I will do it myself. Honestly, I might as well be talking to the wall. He strode through the doorway and hurried across the floor to the little patch of starlight that lanced down from the glass dome high above the centre of the library. Although, of course, there has always been considerable debate about the precise geography of the place, heavy concentrations of magic distort time and space, and it is possible that the library doesn't even have an edge, never mind a centre. He stretched out his arms. There, see? Absolutely nothing has happened. Now, come on in. The other wizards did so, with great reluctance, and a tendency to duck as they passed through the ravished arch. OK, said Sconner, with some satisfaction. Now, has everyone got their matches as instructed? Magical fire won't work, not on these books, so I want everyone to... Something moved up there, said the smallest wizard. Sconner blinked. What? Something moved up by the dome, said the wizard, adding by way of explanation, I saw it. Sconner squinted upwards into the bewildering shadows and decided to exert a bit of authority. Nonsense, he said briskly. He pulled out a bundle of foul-smelling yellow matches and said, Now, I want you all to pile... I did see it, you know, said the small wizard sulkily. All right. What did you see? Well, I'm not exactly... You don't know, do you? snapped Sconner. I saw something. You don't know, repeated Sconner. You're just seeing shadows, just trying to undermine my authority. Isn't that it? Sconner hesitated and his eyes glazed momentarily. I am calm, he 
he intoned. I am totally in control. I will not let... It was... Listen, short ass, you can just jolly well shut up, all right? One of the other wizards, who had been staring upwards to conceal his embarrassment, gave a strangled little cough. Um, Sconner? And that goes for you, too! Sconner pulled himself to his full bristling height and flourished the matches. As I was saying, he said, I want you to light the matches and... Ugh, I suppose I'll have to show you how to light matches for the benefit of short ass there. And I am not out of the window, you know. Good grief, look at me! You take a match... He lit a match. The darkness blossomed into a ball of sulphurous white light and the librarian dropped on him like the descent of man. They all knew the librarian in the same definite but diffused way that people know walls and floors and all the other minor but necessary scenery on the stage of life. If they recalled him at all, it was as a sort of gentle, mobile sigh sitting under his desk repairing books or knuckling his way among the shelves in search of secret smokers. Any wizard unwise enough to hazard a clandestine roll-up wouldn't know anything about it until a soft, leathery hand reached up and removed the offending homemade but the librarian never made a fuss. He just looked extremely hurt and sorrowful about the whole sad business and then ate it. Whereas what was now attempting with considerable effort to unscrew Sconner's head by the ears was a screaming nightmare with its lips curled back to reveal long yellow fangs. The terrified wizards turned to run and found themselves bumping into bookshelves that had unaccountably blocked the aisles. The smallest wizard yelped and rolled under a table laden with atlases and lay with his hands over his ears to block out the dreadful sounds as the remaining wizards tried to escape. Eventually there was nothing but silence, but it was that particularly massive silence created by something moving very stealthily, as it might be, in search of something else. The smallest wizard ate the tip of his hat out of sheer terror. The silent mover grabbed him by the leg and pulled him gently but firmly out into the open, where he gibbered a bit with his eyes shut, and then, when ghastly teeth failed to meet his throat, ventured a quick glance. The librarian picked him up by the scruff of his neck and dangled him reflectively a foot off the ground, just out of reach of a small and elderly wire-haired terrier who was trying to remember how to bite people's ankles. Um, said the wizard, and was then thrown in an almost flat trajectory through the broken doorway where his fall was broken by the floor. After a while, a shadow next to him said, Well, that's it then. Anyone seen that daft bastard Sconner? And a shadow on the other side of him said, I think my neck's broken. Who's that? That daft bastard, said the shadow nastily. Oh, sorry, Sconner. Sconner stood up, his whole body now outlined in magical aura. He was trembling with rage as he raised his hands. I'll show that wretched throwback to respect his evolutionary superiors, he snarled. Get him, lads! And Sconner was born to the flagstones again under the weight of all five wizards. Sorry, but you know that if you use magic near the library with all the magic that's in there, get one thing wrong and it's a critical mass and then bang, good night world! Sconner growled. The wizards sitting on him decided that getting up was not the wisest thing they could do at this point. Eventually he said... Right, you're right, thank you. It was wrong of me to lose my temper like that. Clouded my judgment, essential to be dispassionate. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Get off. They risked it. Sconner got up. That monkey, he said, has eaten its last banana. Fetch 
Um, ape, Skona, said the smallest wizard, unable to stop himself. It's an ape, you see. Uh, not a monkey. He wilted under the stare. Who cares? Ape, monkey, what's the difference? said Skona. What's the difference, Mr. Zoologist? I don't know, Skona, said the wizard meekly. I think it's a class thing. Shut up! Yes, Skona. You ghastly little man, said Skona. He turned and added in a voice as level as a saw blade, I am perfectly controlled. My mind is as cool as a bald mammoth. My intellect is absolutely in charge. Which one of you sat on my head? No, I must not get angry. I am not angry. I am thinking positively. My faculties are fully engaged. Do any of you wish to argue? No, Sconner, they chorused. Then get me a dozen barrels of oil and all the kindling you can find. That ape's gonna fry. End of CD 4